Thank you so much for joining us today at our Savior's Church, where we are one church meeting in five different locations. And our goal is to help you on your spiritual journey to know God, find freedom, discover purpose, and make a difference in the lives around you. If you'd like to learn more about our Savior's Church or how to get involved, visit us online at OurSavior'sChurch.com. Well, it is so good to be back here and so good to see so many of you who helped start all that is and the 12,000 people that call themselves our Savior's Church. And that's not counting Jennings and Eunice and Crowley and the, the Baton Rouge campus of Church of the King and all of all of that that's over there. All of y'all have been an amazing part of that. And I'm always reminded of that whenever I come here. Thank you for your sacrifice. Thank you for your faithfulness. And thank you for loving Pastor Gabe and Lauren and caring for them just like you did for Michelle and I. Yeah, just like you did for us. There's probably nothing more powerful than the message of grace. There's nothing more powerful than the message of grace. Probably one of the most well-known conversions in the last 100 years happened with the professor of Cambridge and Oxford University. He was a professor of literature and one of the most brilliant minds in the world, and he was an atheist. But he had a friend who was a professor of literature as well that began challenging him about his atheism. The man... You will know his name when I tell you in just a moment. But the man that challenged him was a famous literary giant himself. His name was J.R. Tolkien. And he wrote a book called Lord of the Rings. And J.R. Tolkien had a dear friend at Oxford University and his name was C.S. Lewis. And he challenged him to examine what he believed and why he believed it. And in the process probably the greatest conversion that's happened within the last 100 years happened. And it's interesting because what they did is they actually, even though C.S. Lewis got saved, C.S. Lewis, from the moment he was born again, said, everything I write, Jesus is going to be in it. So how many of you have read The Lion, the Witch, and the Wardrobe or seen the movie? Raise your hand. Okay. How many of you know who the lion is? It's Jesus. There's the screw tape letters. There's the problem with pain. There's all of these amazing books and all of them have Christ right in the center of them. But the man that led him to Christ, J.R. Tolkien, didn't feel that way. He felt like you could just write good things and that would be good enough. So guess who we all remember and whose writings are still enduring? C.S. Lewis. Why? Because when you put Jesus in the middle of anything, it goes from being temporary to being eternal. It doesn't matter if it's your business. It doesn't matter if it's your influence, your writing, your singing, whatever it is. When you put Jesus in the middle of it, that's what happens. So from that point on, C.S. Lewis actually traveled around defending the Christian faith. So he was in an open forum once with a bunch of different religions that were represented. Kind of like people believe today. Many people believe that that Christianity is one belief system on a buffet. Now, when I was raised in Texas, I didn't know what a buffet was. I thought a buffet is what you ate at Halloween night. But when I came to South Louisiana and became a Cajun, I realized buffet, the boo was for all the scary things that were on the menu. Catfish, crawfish, frog. I mean, and, and many people actually believe that Christianity is one of many things on the buffet of belief systems and that you just go and you choose whichever one is your taste or whichever one is your flavor. And so when C.S. Lewis was transformed by the power of Jesus, He was in a forum and there was Buddhist and Hindu and Muslims and all of these different belief systems. And they asked him last, what is the difference between your faith and every other faith represented here? And he said, oh, that's easy. Grace. Grace. You see, most Middle Eastern systems believe in something called karma. How many of you know what karma is? I'm not talking about karma, 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 chameleon. That was boy George. Okay, I, karma is a belief in, in Eastern thought that if you do something bad, it comes back to you in one way or another and through another life. Like right now, there are people starving in India, in places of India, 
and there are cows walking around in front of those people. But they actually believe that those cows are a pre- could be a previous relative that did something bad in a previous life, so they came back as a cow. It's a true story. So they believe everything is reincarnated based upon what you were before. So the motivation to be good now is you could come back as a roach. (laughs) That's the motivation. So that's called karma. In the Old Testament perspective, in New Testament perspective, it's called the law of sowing and? Or as one preacher said, ripping and sowing, whatever you rips that you shall sow. Some of y'all will figure that out later on. <laughs> and, and so all, all of this implies that when you do something, there is a natural consequence that follows. And all of that's true except for one thing. Grace. So, so pastor, what is grace? And why is grace called amazing? The word grace is used 131 times in the Bible, 124 times in the New Testament, 86 times in the writings of Paul. That's why he's called the apostle of grace. In John 1:17, John writes, for the law was given through, through who? But grace, the unearned, undeserved favor of God and truth came through So the law came through who? Moses, but grace and truth came through Jesus. It came through Jesus. So what is grace? I want to give you an acronym. And those of you who are old school OSC, orange chair people, when we had Wednesday night service, will remember this. Grace, G-R-A-C-E, means God's riches at Christ's expense. I want you to say that with me. God's riches at Christ's expense. Come on. Let's do it one more time so that you don't forget. God's riches at Christ's expense. So why is it so amazing? Because without it, everyone who sins dies and remains eternally separated from God. Yesterday, Joseph, my son, preached his first big funeral. It was a 24-year-old young man who died coming home from work in Texas. Six months, uh, six years previously, his father took his life. And now there is one brother left and a mama. And, and when you look at circumstances like that, okay, you, there is a question that everyone asks. Why? Why would God allow this? Why would God allow this? Here's the truth. The world's never been what God wanted it to be since the fall in the garden. You and I were created to live forever. And that's why when you go to a funeral, it doesn't matter if it's for somebody 99 or 19. Still, you're sad. Ecclesiastes says it like this in the Bible, eternity is written in our heart. In other words, we know internally we were supposed to live forever. So when someone dies, something inside every one of us says it wasn't supposed to be this way. And when Adam and Eve sinned in the garden, three foreigners came that God never intended man to experience fear and guilt and shame. Fear and guilt and shame. So let me ask a question. It's a simple one. How many have ever done something sinful? Okay, those of you that didn't raise your hand, you just did something sinful. <laughs> you lied in church. Okay, and, and when you sinned, have you ever seen a little child when you told them not to do something? You, did you go get a cookie? And they go, crumbs all over their face. Did you? Uh-uh, uh-uh. Because guilt is there. Do you know what fear, guilt, and shame are? They're a preview on the eternity of someone who doesn't know Christ. Because what hell is, is fear and guilt and shame and darkness forever. It's true. 
People think that hell is a place that God threatens people with so that you will obey him. No, hell is a place for people who've said, God, I don't want you ruling my life in your love. I don't want you ruling my life in your light. I don't want you ruling my life in your forgiveness and goodness. And so hell is simply the only place where God is not. And there is no love, and there is no light, and there is no life, and fear and guilt and shame and torment are forever. Hell is the place where people go that God finally answers their prayer. Leave me alone. And God finally says, okay, when you die, I will. I will. And by the way, do you know that hell was never created for people? You say, pastor, who said that? Jesus said that. Jesus said hell was created for the devil and his angels. People were never intended to be there because people were intended to live forever. So when I live with fear and guilt and shame, you know what it is? It's a down payment on my eternity, separated from Christ. How many of you have gone through some difficult things as a Christian? Raise your hand. How many of you have lost some loved ones as a Christian? Raise your hand. How many of you have lost some loved ones, but there was a peace that covered you that people could not understand? And people walk up to you and go, how, how, how can you not be in crisis? How can you have any peace? How can you not lose your mind? Because the Bible says there is a peace that surpasses all understanding. Do you know what that is? That's a down payment on your eternity. That too is a down payment on your eternity. The great consequence of not experiencing the grace of God is that grace gives us access to all Jesus is instead of what our sin deserves. We get who he is instead of what we deserve for the sinners that we are. Grace interrupts that. Moses in the law says they committed adultery, they lied, they stole, they were selfish, they sinned, their heart was full of lust, and grace steps in and goes, yes, but Jesus took it all for them. And so the scripture says it like this in Ephesians 2, for it is by, it's by what? It's by grace, God's remarkable compassion and favor drawing you to Christ. That you have been, what? Actually delivered from judgment and given eternal what? Eternal life through faith. And this salvation is not of yourself, nor through your own effort, but it's an undeserved, gracious gift of, not a result of your own works, nor your attempts to keep the law. Moses, so that no one can be able to boast or take credit in any way for what? For their salvation. No one can. You see, many of you were raised in a belief system that all the good you did in your life got added up on a scale at the end of your life. And all the good added up and then all the bad added up. And when you get to heaven and you stand before Jesus that day, if the good outweighs the bad, then the pearly gates open and St. Peter and Mama are there and everybody starts singing, Kirk Franklin, there ain't no party like a Holy Ghost party because a Holy Ghost party don't stop. Huh. <laughs> but if the bad outweighs the good, the gates don't open, Mama stands there crying, a trap door opens up, and Queen starts singing, another one bites the dust, ha, 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 another one bites the dust. Grace freely gives us a gift that we could never achieve or earn on our best day, week, month, year. Salvation, the privilege of being born again. Jesus gave us that freely. It's called grace. It's called grace. Sometimes we don't see something clearly until we see it visualized in real life. Today's story is one of those things. 
It reveals to us the power of grace and us getting what we don't deserve, which is grace. It is grace. John chapter eight, verse one says this, and Jesus walked up to the Mount of Olives near the city where he spent the night. Then at dawn, Jesus appeared in the temple courts again, and soon all the people gathered around him to listen to his words. So he sat down and what? Taught them. Okay, look, this is service. This is church service. Jesus comes down from the mountain. Everybody knows he's here. He's preaching and doing Bible studies. And they go down to the temple and everybody's gathered around Jesus for a Bible study. That's the setting. He's in the temple. He's in church. This is a Sunday morning. We're all gathered here. And now look and see what happens. Then in the middle of Pastor Jacob preaching, (laughs) the religious scholars and the Pharisees. Now, let me explain to you who these people were. That would be the equivalent of saying the most high-level Baptist preacher, the bishop, and the most high-level non-denominational preacher all together. In the middle of his teaching, these religious scholars and Pharisees broke through the crowd and brought a what? Woman. The doors swing open. My man, the Broussard policeman back there who told me I could preach anything I wanted and I was safe. I don't know. He's looking at his phone right now. Somebody could be attacking me this very moment. Okay, but imagine we're having service, the back doors fly open, you hear noise and a rustling, and all of a sudden somebody's being drug up to the front of the church. In the middle of his teachings, the rigid scholars and the Pharisees broke through the crowd and brought a, who had been, read it with me, in the, of, now the Bible usually gives headlines, it gets a lot of specifics right here. It wasn't like they caught a woman walking into a hotel on Four Corners. How many of you know what Four Corners is? How many of you know what happens at Four Corners? How do you know? My first question. And they bring her a woman caught in the act of adultery. What is the significance? According to the law of Moses in Deuteronomy, you couldn't accuse someone of anything worthy of death unless you had two witnesses that had seen it. So they bring her and this woman is caught in the act of adultery. And here's what they say. Service stops. Jesus is looking at him. One commentator said the woman was topless when they drug her in. Doesn't Moses' law command us to stone to death a woman like this? Tell us, what do you say that we should do with her? They were only testing Jesus because they hoped to trap him with his own words and accuse him of breaking the law of, the law came through Moses, but grace and truth came through Jesus Christ. But Jesus didn't answer them. Instead, he bent down and he wrote in the dust with his finger. Angry, they kept insisting that he answer the question. So Jesus stood up and he looked at them and said, let's have the man who never had a sinful desire throw the first stone at her. One commentator said, let's have the man who never thought of committing adultery throw the first stone. And then he bent over again and wrote, some words in the dust. Upon hearing that, her accusers slowly left the crowd one at a time, beginning with, remember, in the East, the oldest are the most revered, the most respected. So the oldest scholars, religious leaders dropped their rocks they were going to stone her with, all the way down to the youngest with a, a convicted conscience. Until finally, Jesus was left alone with the woman still standing in front of him. So he stood back up and said to her, dear woman, where are your accusers? Is there no one here to condemn you? You know why Jesus asked the question? You know, the story tells us they made her stand up in front of the people. You think she was looking out? Answer. 
No, she was looking down in shame. Remember, how many witnesses did you have to have to kill somebody? Now, how many people are left? Her and Jesus. And the moment the last person left and it was her and Jesus, she knew she could no longer be killed. Looking around, she replied, I don't see anyone, Lord. And Jesus said, then I certainly don't condemn you either. Say that with me. I don't condemn you either. Go from now on and be free from a life of sin. Now, let's talk about this story because there's so many powerful things in this story. Can I talk to you about this story a minute? Let me give you, since this is Woman's Month, the first question. Every woman in the crowd is asking. What's, what's the first question, ladies? Where's the man? If she was caught in the act of adultery, where's the man she was caught with? Come on, ladies. Come on, ladies. Come on, ladies. Whoa, it's a little rowdy. Where's the man? Where's the man? Imagine the wickedness of the religious leaders that were willing to have a woman killed to prove a point. They got up that morning and went, we're going to kill a woman today to trap Jesus. The religious leaders, the people that were there to represent God, to represent this book, to represent love and purity and holiness and kindness and goodness. They got up that morning and went, we have finally concocted a way to trap Jesus, but we're going to have to kill a woman to do it. But so what? She's a hooker. And so they drag her to Jesus that day. I'm going to ask you a question. You you think she had any idea that morning when she woke up, she was going to end up in church. Now I'm going to ask you a question. And before I do this, I'm going to tell you, I see your Facebook. Okay. How many of you know there's church clothes? And those, those other clothes you wear when you're running around a veal on Saturday night. Abbeville, St. Martinville, the Clubville, Cowboyville, LaFondaville, Peachville, Lauraville, <laughs> Catahoulaville, Dusonville. Come on, DeVille. Okay, you know that those other clothes you have. You know, when you put your little babe on. You know what I mean? When you wear those jeans so tight, you stick a dime in the back pocket, read the date on it. <laughs> those ones. You know that, that skanky top you wear. You know what I'm talking about. I don't know what skanky is, but my wife says it's a word. So, I mean, I guess what it is. Which clothes do you think she was wearing? I wonder if she even had church clothes. And that day, she's about to have either the day she's going to die, and if not the day she's going to die, the day she wished she would die. And they drag her half clothed and throw her right up in the front of Jesus' church service. And then say, The law says, kill her. What do you say? And then after the question of where's the man, here's the second question. How many of you have ever seen a Bible with red letters? What what were the red letters? Jesus' words. Do you know that we don't know of any word that Jesus ever wrote except this story? And he sat down. And he starts writing. You know what I think he wrote? I think he looked at the crowd 
And he wrote the name of the people that had thought about doing that. Oh, that's T. Boudreaux. He's nasty. Let's see. Okay. There's Boo. Boo, Boo, you guilty. Okay. There's T. John. You, you, you lusted when she came in here. You. True story. True story. I, this is, now what I'm about to tell y'all is a true story. Now, the reason I have to tell you this is a true story because you're not going to believe it. I was called in the middle of the night to St. Martinville a few years back to cast a demon out of somebody at one o'clock in the morning. Now, when I went to bed that night, I don't know how prayed up I was, but by the time I answered that phone and I got to the outskirts of St. Martinville at one o'clock in the morning, I was deep in the Holy Ghost. The phone rang and here's what I picked up the phone and went, that's what I woke up to. And when I finally got the information and finally got the screaming down, I said, well, what's going on? My husband has demonically began to manifest. He's writhing around like a snake on the ground with his tongue out and voices are speaking out of him. Would you come? You know what I said? I'm dead asleep. Did you call the sheriff's department? <laughs> That's exactly what I said. <laughs> Y'all want me to lie? You want me to tell you the truth? I said, did you call the sheriff's department? I mean, do they got a demon driver up there? <laughs> so finally, when I woke up, literally it was in the middle of the night and I, I drive out and they wave, I drive all the way through before I got to St. Murphy, you turn left and somebody waving me down the middle of the road at one o'clock in the morning. And I go in there to the house, okay? There's three people in the living room and I go in, there's two people trying to hold this guy down. And so I walk in and just so you know, it's not a big deal when you're a child of God. Not a big deal, okay? Rebuke the demon, told him to be quiet. Guy repented, renounced the demon, started throwing up all over, and it was over. Okay. So about an hour later, we're sitting with his wife and them in the living room. And um, I said, well, what happened before I got here? They said, well, she said, when he started doing that, I called another couple that I knew, and they came, brought another couple, and and, and the man went in and he laid hands on the demon and said, devil, come out. And the devil said, you're addicted to pornography. How in the world can you cast me out? And the man jumped up and ran out the room. That's why they call me. <laughs> Jesus knew. If demons know who's addicted to porn. And he's riding on the ground. And he looks up. The only thing we know of that Jesus ever wrote and none of us even know what it is. And then after he says, let the one of you which never thought of doing the same thing and never lusted. Because remember the law says don't commit adultery. Jesus said if you look at a woman with lust in your heart, you've already committed adultery. Yeah. The law came to change your actions. Jesus came to change your heart. And now Jesus stands up. And I know what Jesus did. Did that woman half clothed? You know what he did? He took his robe and he put it on her. You see, pastor, how do you know he did that? Because that's the very thing he did when Adam and Eve were naked in the garden, came out with those fig leaves. He killed animal skins to cover their nakedness. You know what the lie of the enemy is? If I really get honest with God, if I really get honest with my pastor, spiritual leaders, if I really tell them what I'm going through, they will embarrass me. No, they won't. The real Jesus covers your sin when you uncover it before him. And then he said, when finally she looked up and realized it was only her and him and you had to have two witnesses and she wasn't witnessing against herself. He said, where are your accusers? She goes, they're gone. 
The word condemn here, this is actually death. Where are the people that wanted to kill you? Where are the two men that drug you here? Where are the two men that when they grabbed you went, this is your last day. You're going to see what this kind of living will do to you. I'm taking you where, and all of a sudden she ends up in the holiest place in the entire city in church. Where are they? There's nobody here that wants to kill you. And she says, no, Lord. And Jesus said, neither do I. I didn't come to kill you. I came to give you life. I came to give you life. Jesus did three things that grace always does when it intersects man. Number one, he had communication without condemnation. Do you know Christians that go around condemning everybody? That's not Jesus. That might be religious, but it's not Jesus. It's not Jesus. It's not Jesus. John 3, 17, Jesus said this, God did not send his son in the world to judge and condemn the world, but to be its savior and what? Jesus didn't come to embarrass you. He came to rescue you from you. Can I tell you something? I've done worse things to me than anybody's ever done to me. The worst things that ever happened to me in my lifetime, I did to me. Anybody can identify with that? No, not I did it to you, but you did it to you. Yeah, yeah, you did it to me too. But no, you did it to you. <laughs> Legalism condemns. Christ always communicates the heart of God. St. Augustine said, God's grace always seems to startle religious people. Jesus goes around forgiving people you would never forgive. That's why it's called grace. Here's the second thing Jesus did. He challenged the woman without condoning her sin. He challenged the woman without condoning her sin. Though he found her caught in adultery, he told her she could not stay there. The grace of God might find you in sin, but the true grace of God empowers you to leave it and it never leaves you in sin. It never leaves you in sin. Where are your accusers? Can you imagine this? That woman had been accused all of her life. Husband late for work. Where you been? Did you go by Trixie's? You go by Nasty Nicky's? I know it took you a little longer to get home. I'm going to go talk to her now. Let, 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 me, let me share something with you that I don't want you to repeat what I'm going to say without the context of what I'm going to say. I am a prostitute expert. That's why I said don't repeat it. I was raised in a bar. I have four sisters who got pregnant 13, 14, and 15. My mom had prostitutes that worked in her bar. The bar was connected to our house. I saw these women in their lives. I'm not talking about the lewdness. I'm not talking about the lasciviousness of their dress. I'm talking about the fact that most of them came from, didn't have a daddy, were abused when they were a child. When you get to the place that you become a prostitute, you have been so taken advantage of and so hardened in the most sensitive areas of your life that by the time you exchange your body for money, you have been so wounded and so scarred in the most intimate areas of your life that it no longer even has a feeling. That's prostitutes. That's who's working at Michael's. Behind the lascivious clothes is a broken, abused, most often molested little girl who've been taken advantage of all of her life. And look at me. If you think Jesus sees your heart when he's broken, he's been seeing their heart since they were three or four or five years old, molested and broken. Let that just sit on you a minute. Let that sit on you a minute. We look at the external. Jesus sees the heart. We see the sin. God sees the brokenness that brought the sin. 
He challenges us without condoning the sin. Without condoning the sin. Here's the third thing. He had compassion without compromising. He said, I don't condemn you. But isn't it great that he said more than that? He said, now go and leave the life of sin. One translation says, go and sin no more. Can you imagine how uncompassionate? This is a woman who is a prostitute for a living. He didn't say, go get some job training at SLCC, and you can be a hooker part-time and that part-time until you, you know, get, become a waitress. He didn't, he didn't say any of that. He just said, leave the life you're living right now, and because you've encountered the grace of God, I give you power to live differently from this time forward. When the grace of God meets you, it doesn't make you perfect, but it does mean you make progress from being stuck in the sin that you've been stuck in for the duration of your life. You know, some people actually believe they're more compassionate than God. They think that if someone is living adversely to the word of God in their sexuality, whether it's immorality, homosexuality, anytime, whether someone is addicted and, and you look at them, you go, well, well, God knows. They're just, he does know. I want you to hear what I'm going to say. God's commandments and the way he commands us to live in this book are not so God will be better. It's so you will be better. You don't break God's commandments when you violate them. You break you. The Bible says all things are held together by the word of his mouth. And when you go against this word, your life falls apart. Everybody here is media savvy. Those of you that follow Instagram, MySpace, your space. Is MySpace even a thing anymore? TikTok, Rick Rack, Nick Knock, whatever the latest thing is, I don't even know. But you can read, I read the news every day. Every day, headlines, 19-year-old YouTube star commits suicide. 21-year-old beautiful model dies. 23-year-old famous person dies. Do you know why? Because when you don't live life the way that God designs you to live, you make life unlivable. You make life unlivable. God's commandments are not to make God happy. You know what it's like? How many of you are tired of paying $4 a gallon gas? Be encouraged, $6 a gallon gas is coming. Enjoy $4 while you can. But I know, would imagine, if you imagine somebody going, you know what? I'm going to show them. I'm going to show Joe Biden. I'm going to show the government. They think they're going to just shaft me by charging me $5 for gas. I'm going to show them. I'm pulling up my new truck. I'm not going to the gas station. I'm filling it up with a water hose. I'm showing them. Ha! Because then it won't cost you $200 to fill up your tank. It'll cost you $10,000 to fix your engine. Because when you live a way that you were not designed to live you destroy what was created by the creator. You make life unlivable. You make life unlivable. Guilt, fear, and shame haunt you. They haunt you because you're not living the way that you were created to live. So Jesus looked at her and said, go and sin no more. Why? Because that was the best way for her to live. It's the best way for her to live. When you don't steal, it's the best way for you to live. We don't lie, it's the best way for you to live. We don't tell everybody everything you think. First of all, you don't show people how stupid you are. Second of all, you don't regret it when you don't say it. It's just the best way for you to live. What most people call the judgment of God is not the judgment of God. It's the consequences of their own stupidity. That's all it is. You can jump off this building and say, I'll show God. Now, when you hit the bottom, you'll see God. 
if you violate the law of gravity, don't blame God. You're not living the way that you were designed to live. Look at me. Look right what I'm saying right now. Look at me. You say, Pastor, that's easy for you to say. You married 40 years, beautiful wife, children. It's true. It's true. But that's not who you're looking at. You're looking at the son of a barmaid. You know why I can say this? I saw what happens when you don't live life according to this book. I saw it in my dad who married five times. I saw it in my mom who married for the second time, a man who had been married seven times. I've seen it in each of my sisters and now my nieces and my nephews. I know what happens when you violate God's word. You don't violate God, you violate you. You violate you. Grace always lifts you. Grace always loves you. And, but grace never leaves you where it found you. Now, can I get to the favorite part of the story? Can I get to my favorite part? Can I last three minutes get my favorite part? You know what I love about the grace of God? It reverses the curse of the law. Look at me. Who woke up that morning feeling righteous? The religious leaders. Who woke up that morning feeling blameless? The religious leaders. Who woke up that morning thinking they were all the stuff? The religious leaders. Who woke up that morning feeling like a slut? With guilt and fear and shame and unclean and embarrassed of her occupation. Prostitute did. But when both of them met grace and truth, something happened. The roles were reversed. Who left feeling guilty and convicted? Who left feeling ashamed? Who left feeling dirty and nasty? Who left forgiven? Who left free? Who left with a new future? Grace reverses the roles. I get, because of Jesus, what I don't deserve. Because he took what I do deserve. That's grace. That's why it's called God's riches at Christ's expense. Let me share my favorite scripture. I've been reading the Bible 48 years. I'm going to read you my favorite verse right here. And we're going to close. Here it is. 2 Corinthians 5.21. I want you to read it with me. For God, God did what? He did what? The God that made the sun, the earth, the stars, the God that made the trees, the God that made the mountains, the oceans, the rivers, the streams, he made. That's how he makes. For God made the one, the only one who did not know what? Who's the only one that didn't know sin? Jesus was God. Can God sin? No. So God made the only one who didn't know sin, who was who? Read this with me. Two. Okay. Could Jesus sin? So Jesus was made sin by God. And here's this words. For who? For who? And here's the next two words. What are they? So say it loud. How many of you parents here love your children? How many of you sacrifice for your children? How many of you ever looked at them and go, what do you mean you won't do that? Do you know how hard I've worked so that you could have that car, so that you could have those clothes, so that you could have those tennis shoes, so that you could go to the school you go to, so that for God made the one who knew no sin to become sin for us. He had to make him to be sin because he couldn't sin for us so that we might, might what? Become the righteousness of God through our union with. Now here's the cool part. Let me close. Could Jesus sin? Can you be righteous on your own? So you know what God did? God took the one who could never sin 
and he made him to be sin. You know why? So he could make you to be righteous. And just like Jesus could not sin on his own, you can't be righteous on your own. So the same God that made him to be sin is the same God that made you to be righteous. Grace, God's riches at Christ's expense. The cross is the place where I go to lay down all of my sin because it's the place that Jesus went to lay down all of his righteousness. And he picked up my sin so that I could pick up his righteousness. Now I could look at every person here and go, say, I'm a sinner. And everyone would go, I'm a sinner, I'm a sinner. And you gladly accept that. But Jesus didn't die to make you a sinner. You are already a sinner. Adam and Eve did that. Jesus died to make you righteous. I am the righteousness of God in Christ because of grace. I want you to say it with me. I am the righteousness of God because of grace. I am the righteousness of God because of grace. I am the righteousness of God because of grace. I like to say it like this. For God made Jesus, who knew no sin, to become sin for Jacob. So that Jacob might become the righteousness of God in Jesus. For God made Jesus, who knew no sin, to be sin for Jacob. So Jacob could become the righteousness of God. of Jesus. Would you bow your head with me? Heavenly Father, we thank you for the grace of God. We thank you for the power of grace that you look at us and you know each thing. There is nothing hidden from you. There's not one thing we thought or done. And just like that crowd, when you wrote on the ground, you could write the same thing of everyone that's here because our thoughts on earth are like words in heaven. And you know what we are. Today, we thank you for your amazing grace. Today, we thank you for your amazing grace. If you would, would you lay your hands on your lap and just have your palms open, just just on your lap. Your hands open. I want you to say this with me. Dear Lord Jesus, thank you for grace. God's riches at Christ's expense for me. Jesus, today, I receive all you died for. You died for my sin so I could be your righteousness. You died for my sin so I could be your righteousness. Today, I confess, I acknowledge, and I receive that I am the righteousness of God in Jesus Christ. Now, Father, today I pray for every person here. I pray that the word that's been deposited into their heart be received, be received, be received, that it be received. Thank you for your grace. Thank you for your goodness. And now with every head bowed and every eye closed, I want to ask you the most important question of your life. Jesus said, unless a man or woman was born again, they wouldn't see the kingdom of heaven. Jesus said, unless a man or woman was born again, they wouldn't enter into the kingdom of heaven. And then he said, don't be surprised that I tell you, you must be born again. My birthday is June the 17th, but my spiritual birthday is the week before Easter, 1971. And I prayed with an African-American counselor in a junior high school. That day, the old Jacob died and a new one was born again and raised from the spiritually dead. You say, Pastor, did you believe in God before that? Yes, I did. 
Pastor, were you baptized before that? Yes, I was. But I'd never been born again. Jesus said, unless a man or woman is born again, you won't see the kingdom of God or enter into the kingdom of God. Pastor, how can I do that? It's as easy as A, B, C. A, admit that you're a sinner. B, believe that Jesus Christ became your sin bearer. Someone will die for your sin. Either he did or you will. C, confess Christ as your Lord and Savior as you turn away from sin to be born again. So with your heads bowed and your eyes closed, if you're here and you say, Pastor, I believe in God and I believe in Jesus, but I've never prayed to be born again. I may have even been christened or baptized, joined the church, but I've never prayed to be born again. All those other things are a good start, but that's not what Jesus said. He said, you must be born again. How can I do that? How can I do that today? By raising my hand, And on the count of three, I'm going to count to three. On the count of three, if you're here and you say, Pastor, I believe in God and I believe in Jesus, but I've never prayed to be born again. Would you pray for me today? I want to be born again. Just raise your hand high and put it back down on the count of three. I won't embarrass you. I'm just going to pray for you right at your seat. One, God brought you here. Two, everything in your life has led up to this moment. Nothing is an accident. And now God is reaching out to you. Today's your day. Being born again only happens once, just like the day you were born. But if you've never been born again and today you want to, on the count of three, I want you to raise your hand. Three. Raise your hand high. Yes, I see your hand. One, two, three, four, five, six, seven, eight, nine, ten, eleven, twelve, thirteen, fourteen. Anywhere else? Anywhere else? Fifteen. Okay. Now with your heads bowed and your eyes closed, last 10 seconds, Pastor, I didn't raise my hand with these 15, but I should have. My heart's about to beat out of my chest. I know this is what I need. I know it. I don't know why I didn't raise my hand. I've just been afraid. <clears throat> Today, I want to be born again. I didn't raise my hand, but I should have. Raise it and wave it at me. I'm asking this last time for you. Join these 15. Wave it at me. 16. Yes, sir. See that? Put your hand down. Now, church, let's pray out loud with all of those that raise their hand to be born again today. We're going to join you. Dear Lord Jesus, I believe you're the son of God. I believe that on the cross, you took my guilt, my sin, and my shame, and you died for it. I believe you faced hell for me so I would not have to go. And you rose from the dead to give me a place in heaven, a purpose on earth, and a relationship with your father. Today, Lord Jesus, I turn away from sin to be born again. Today, God is my Father, Jesus is my Savior, and I'm born again in Jesus' name. Amen.